We'll honor the reading of God's Word in that way. I like to hear those pages turning. That's good. Psalm chapter 73, this is the Word of God. A psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The title of our message today is Awaiting Last Things. Awaiting Last Things. I'm a Christian. I've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now, I'm not perfect. That's not what that means. But I am genuinely trying to honor God with my life. And yet, it just seems like I can't catch a break. It seems like there's one bad thing after another in my life. What really gets me is that I then look around at other people who are obviously not living for Jesus, whose lifestyles fit the definition of a wicked lifestyle, and their lives seem to be problem-free. They have money and good health and great jobs and nice homes. And then I look at my life. Sometimes it just seems like God is punishing me for trying to do the right thing. For trying to do what's right while 
those who don't seem to care at all about living for God just seem to get blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And now I know God is real, and I really do trust in Him. But if I'm honest, I really wish my life could look more like the prosperous wicked around me than like a poor saint. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? Some of you have lived that scenario before. Some of you are living that scenario right now. If you're a new believer, I can tell you there'll probably be at least sometime in the future that you will live out that scenario in your walk with the Lord. In Psalm 73, we see a man living out that scenario. We see a man wrestling with this very issue. It's so easy, especially during the trials of our lives as Christians, to look around see the prosperity of the wicked, and begin to doubt the goodness of God. But we must fight against this temptation. We must. We must fight against this temptation so that we will remain faithful to God, faithfully serving God, even when it seems like our faithfulness is only being rewarded with trials and difficulties. Now, how do we fight this temptation? Well, I think one of the ways that we do, and the way that uh, this psalm will lead us to fight today, is by looking to the end. It's by looking to the end. Church, faithfulness to God in the present requires interpreting the present in light of the end. Faithfulness to God. What I mean by that is continuing to love the Lord and serve the Lord and seek to do what's right to honor Him. Faithfulness to God in the present, in the right now, like here and now, today. Faithfulness to God today requires that we interpret, that we, that we understand and view and process the present, what is going on around us in our lives and in the lives of those around us, including in the lives of the wicked around us. We interpret what we see in light of what is coming in the end. You see, what happens is that we can get so focused on our present circumstances and get so focused on comparing our present circumstances with the circumstances of the wicked around us that we begin to interpret what we see simply in light of what we see. We interpret what's going on, we try to make sense of it in light of what we see right here. We see the wicked prosper and we see ourselves not prospering and we interpret this to mean that faithfulness to God is not all it's cracked up to be. And the easier and better life would be just to not worry so much about trying to do the right thing and maybe live a little bit like the wicked around us because their lives seem to be so much easier and better. However, God's Word reveals the end. God's Word tells us what is coming. And the end looks very different than the present often appears. Let me say that again. The end looks very different than the present often appears. And so God's Word calls us to look in faith to the end so that we will interpret the present in light of the end. Think about it this way. I want you to consider for a moment an athlete in December training for the Summer Olympics. That athlete in December training for the Summer Olympics, his body is broken down. His body is tired and sore. He looks around. His friends are just living it up. 
They're eating whatever they want. They're staying up as late as they want. Their bodies don't hurt like his is hurting. And he starts to become envious of them. And he wonders that the path he has chosen is actually worth it. Now his coach sees what's happening in this athlete's mind. And he sees them becoming envious. And so the coach says, son, do you see the finish line? Do you see that pedestal? Do you see the gold medal? Do you see the end game? Do you see what's coming? Now, why does the coach say that? What's he doing? Well, he's helping that athlete interpret the present circumstances in light of the end. So that he'll say, it's worth it. It's worth it right now to keep up the training, even though it seems like I'm just getting battered and bruised for it because of what's coming in the end. He wants to press on and not give up. In this series of doctrine in the Psalms, we've learned about lots of different doctrines in Scripture. Doctrine of revelation and doctrine of God and humanity and sin and Christ and salvation and the Holy Spirit. And last week we looked at the church. And today we're going to consider the doctrine of last things. Or you may have heard it called the doctrine of end times. Doctrine of last things or end times. Often when we think about the doctrine of last things, we focus on the details of Christ's return. We focus on the details of heaven. We focus on the details of hell. We ask questions like, when is it going to happen? What will it look like? What will Jesus look like? What will I look like? What are we going to do? How long will it last? What are the order of all of these end time events? We ask questions like that. Those are great questions to ask. We should ask those questions. Uh, in fact, the Bible gives us some of these details. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does give us a lot of details. But the doctrine of last things, whether we're learning from the book of Psalms or Matthew or 1 Thessalonians or the book of Revelation, the doctrine of last things is not meant to answer all of our curious questions as much as it is meant to help us press on in faithful service to God right here in the present. I want us to look at Psalm 73 today in uh, three parts. In part one, one, we're going to see the psalmist looking at life from a human standpoint. Then in part two, we're going to see this change of perspective come about him. And then in part three of this psalm, we're going to see him look at life from this new heavenly perspective. Throughout this, we're going to see him transition from interpreting his present circumstances in light of what he sees in the present to interpreting his present circumstances in light of what God has revealed is coming in the future. Our first truth today is this. Viewing the wicked from a human standpoint will lead us into envy and vanity. Viewing the wicked from a human standpoint will lead us into envy and and vanity. What do I mean by envy and vanity? By envy, I mean becoming discontent with what you have because you want what someone else has. Becoming discontent with what's going on in your life because you would rather have the circumstances of someone else's life. That's envy. By vanity, I mean the thought or feeling that what you are doing is pointless and you might as well give up on it. Oh, this is, this is just in vain. I can't, I, there's no point in, in continuing to do that. This, that's what I mean by vanity. Now, notice that the psalmist begins with a very clear statement regarding the goodness of God in relation to the righteous. Look at verse 1. He says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. There's this very clear statement about the goodness of God that the psalmist opens up with. Truly, God is good 
He's good to Israel. Who's Israel? It's his people. In other words, the psalmist believes that God is good to his people, to those who are on the path of righteous living, those who are pure in heart, those who are seeking to honor the Lord with their lives. God is good to them. The problem is that when he looks around him and compares his life to the wicked, it seems that God is not good to his people. He knows God is good to his people, but what he sees around him it seems to contradict that truth. It seems like God is not good to those who are pure in heart. Look at verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So he says, God is good, but. God is good, but. In other words, he says he almost gave up believing the truth of verse 1. He's almost given up believing that God is good to those who are on the path of righteousness. Now, why? Why would the psalmist stop believing in the goodness of God? Why did he almost give up on the path of righteousness? Well, look at verse 3. Verse 1 through 3 lays out everything that's going to happen in the rest of the psalm. Verse 3. For, here's the reason, for, or because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So arrogant and wicked, just synonyms referring to the same group of people. The arrogant, the wicked, the wicked, the arrogant. Those who are wickedly arrogant and arrogantly wicked. I was envious of them. So here, you see, see what's going on. God is good to His people, but I was starting to slip in my belief of that because I was looking around at the wicked and their lives and I was becoming envious of them. Now, what in the world is going on here? We see this crisis of the heart that really is fleshed out in the next 25 verses. Now, I think we can summarize the crisis of the heart that the psalmist is going through with two questions, okay? The first question we're going to kind of focus on through verse 12, and the second question we'll look at in verse really 13 and 14. Here's the first question that the psalmist is wrestling with, and perhaps you've had the same question before. If God is good, then why do the wicked prosper? If God is so good, then why do the wicked, those who don't care anything about Him, why do their lives seem to be prospering? This is the question he's wrestling with here. But he doesn't just throw this claim out there without any evidence. He's like a prosecuting attorney walking into a courtroom with a briefcase full of evidence. And he just pops open that briefcase and lays it out before the Lord and says, says you, want to, you want to see my evidence, God, of the wicked prospering? This is the evidence in verses 4 through 12. And we'll move kind of quickly through verses 4 through 12. In verses 4 through 5, he, he begins to describe their, their prosperity, their prospering. He, he says this in verses 4 through 5. For they, he's speaking of the wicked, all right, people who don't love the Lord. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, he says they seem to have a pain-free and trouble-free life. And they don't even love you, God. They're prosperous. And then notice verses 6 through 7, excuse me, 6 through 11. Here, just in case, just in case somebody would say, well, they're, they're not that bad. He said, no, 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 you know, I'm talking about the wicked wicked. I'm talking about those who, who really are bad. Let me lay out the evidence for how wicked they are. Verses 6 through 11. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. What do you, what, do you put a necklace on and then try your hardest to cover it all up so nobody can see it? No. 
No, I'm looking at some necklaces out here right now. Like you've got them out where people can see them. That's the point, right? You, you, you don't put that on so people won't see it. Well, that's how they are with their pride. They're so arrogant in their pride. They're arrogantly prideful, if you could say it that way. They're proud of their proudness. Pride, however you, however you want to put that. I mean, that's how wicked they are. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Stop there for a moment. The psalmist is pointing to how obvious their wickedness is. They wear their wickedness like jewelry. They're overflowing with wickedness. They mock anyone who would stand against their wickedness. They're even so bold in their wickedness to speak evil against God and to strut around like they rule the earth. And yet these are the people who are prospering. And then in verses 10 through 11, we see that they gain a following. They're popular. Look at verse 10 through 11. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? So that verse, those two verses are a little, maybe a little confusing. But what's happening there is there, there are people who are, who are following them and, and they don't see anything wrong. They're gaining a following and the people love them. They're becoming popular. And so they're wicked. They're proud of their wickedness and they're leading other people to love wickedness. And these are the people who are prospering, God. The psalmist sums up his evidence in verse 12. It's kind of like he's laid it all out there and he's fixing to say, I rest my case. He sums up his evidence. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. These are the wicked. Always at ease, Increasing in riches. You see the psalmist's dilemma. You see his crisis. He's saying, God, I believe you are good to your people, but it looks like the wicked are the ones who are prospering. And so my feet are slipping. My faith is stumbling. I'm finding myself becoming envious of the wicked. But not only is the psalmist becoming envious of the wicked, he's considering just giving up on the path of righteousness. His envy for the wicked is getting ready to translate into giving up on serving the Lord. Vanity. His faithfulness to God just seems to be all in vain. It's pointless. I mean, why, why, why would I serve the Lord if my life is just getting worse and the people who are serving the Lord, their lives just seem to be getting better? Remember I said we could summarize this crisis with two questions. The first was, if God is good, then why do the wicked prosper? And the second question is this, if the wicked prosper, am I wasting my life trying to do what's right? Maybe you've asked that question before. Am I wasting my life trying to do what's right because it just seems like my life is filled with problems? Look at verse 13. He's so honest. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Verse 1, he said, God is good to those who are pure in heart. And now he's saying, it's pointless, it's useless for me to try to keep my heart clean and wash my hands in innocence. 
And this feeling is exacerbated by the fact that the psalmist's life is not merely absent of prosperity, but is actually filled with what seems like punishment. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he looks at the wicked back up there uh, earlier and he says, They're not stricken. And then I look at my life and all day long I'm stricken. All day long I am experiencing trials and difficulties in my life. So here's the situation as the psalmist sees it. Let me, let me just put it, in, put it in a few different words. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, I'm trying to do the right thing. My life is filled with difficulty. The wicked never try to do what's right. Their lives are filled with prosperity. And yet I'm supposed to believe that God is good. God, I want to believe what I know to be true about you, but my faith is slipping. That's the situation. And here's the point. When the psalmist views the wicked from a human standpoint, he is led into envy and vanity. Envy, verse 3. Vanity, verse 13. So my question is, have you been there? Have you ever been there? My guess is that many of us have. We understand well what the psalmist is saying. Perhaps you're in that boat today as a follower of Christ. God, why am I celebrating Christmas without my child or without my mom or my dad or without my grandparents or without my spouse? I look around me and see people who obviously don't love you, but they're not grieving the loss of a loved one this Christmas season, and I am. God, why am I barely keeping my head above water when it comes to finances? And I look around and see these people who don't care at all about you and righteous living, and yet they're floating in a sea of money this Christmas season. God, I'm over here saying Jesus is the reason for the season, and my life is full of family tension and stress and strain, while those people over there act like Jesus doesn't even exist. But their holiday celebrations seem perfect, and their family seems perfect. They don't have all the stress and strain that I have. God, I believe you're good, but I feel like my faith is slipping. I'm growing envious of the wicked. I'm thinking it might just be useless trying to serve you, and I'm feeling like oh, I just want to give up. If that's you today, what's the answer to those questions? Where do you run when you feel this way? Church, this is real life. This is real life. This is some make-believe scenario. This is real life. What we need is exactly what the psalmist needed. We need a change of perspective. And friends, it's a change that can only come from God. Part number two of this psalm, we learn this. Only God can provide the necessary change in perspective. Only God can provide the necessary change in perspective. See, all is not lost for the psalmist. He, he, he's struggling. He's wrestling. He's, he's laying out his case before the Lord. But all is not lost. His feet may be slipping, but he hasn't fallen yet. Even as the last section ends, we see a glimmer of hope. If we look at verse 15 for just a moment. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus or speak this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What does that mean? Well, the psalmist, while he's really struggling to believe that God is good, he's choosing not to spread the lie that God is not good because he knows that will lead God's people astray. So here's what that means. He is still clinging to the truth that God is good, even though everything around him seems to be saying otherwise. 
He's clinging to that truth that God is good, even though his feet are slipping. And he doesn't want to lead other people astray. And then in verse 16 and 17, we see a shift in his perspective take place. Verse 16, he's trying to figure out this dilemma on his own, and it's getting nowhere fast. But in verse 17, he gives up trying to figure it all out on his own, and he just chooses to worship God anyway even in the midst of his doubting. And it is there, in a moment of worshiping God, that God changes the psalmist's perspective. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says this, But when I thought how to understand this, how do I wrap my mind around the prospering of the wicked and difficulty in my life, and I'm, I'm one of the righteous, I'm trying to serve the Lord, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Here's what he's saying. It was giving me a really bad headache. I was just messing with my mind. I, I couldn't think about it anymore because I couldn't wrap my mind around it. I couldn't understand it. And so I got to that point, and this is what he says. I love this. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The entire psalm pivots on verse 17. And we could spend a whole sermon just thinking about this verse and what it tells us about how to respond to doubting the goodness of God. Now I'll try to summarize what we learned. First, we see that the psalmist finally stopped trying to figure it all out by himself. When I, when I finally got tired of trying to understand it all by myself, I went to the Lord. I went to the sanctuary. So first, first, he stopped trying to figure it out by himself. And then secondly we see that he chose to worship God even in the midst of his doubting. It wasn't that he tried to figure it out and then God gave him the answer and then he went to worship God because he was glad God helped him figure it out. He just goes to worship the Lord even though he still doesn't understand what God is doing. He didn't let his feelings rule him. Instead, he let the truth that he began the psalm with rule him. God is good, therefore He is worthy of worship regardless of how I feel about my current circumstances. Now in His day and time, the sanctuary of the temple was the place where God had instructed people to go to worship Him. That's how they were supposed to worship. And so He went there to that sanctuary, to that temple, to that place. And there in the temple, He would have been reminded of who God is as God's Word was read. And he would have been reminded of God's supreme holiness as he saw the priest and saw the curtain which barred sinners from God's presence. And he would have been reminded of his own sin and the blessing of being forgiven by God as he witnessed a sacrifice being made in his place. He would have seen all of that as he went into the sanctuary of God to worship. Church family, in moments of doubt, we need to do the same thing. We need to stop trying to figure out God on our own and let the truth about God lead us to worship Him even in the midst of our doubting. Now there is a difference for us compared to the psalmist. You see, there's no need for us to go to a physical location called a sanctuary in order for us to worship God. Because here's the, here's the truth of the New Testament. Jesus has replaced the building. Jesus has replaced the, the, the place called the sanctuary. And so we don't go to a place, we go to Jesus. 
We worship God through Jesus. We open up our Bibles by ourselves and with our church family and we celebrate Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Holy One of God who gave Himself as a sacrifice to rip open that curtain and become our great High Priest, thus giving us access to the God who has the power to save us from sin and who has the power to change our perspective so that we won't lose heart. God did that for the psalmist and church family. He can do that for you and for me today. Now notice the result of the psalmist meeting with God. God provided the necessary change in perspective. He allowed the psalmist, notice the end of verse 17, to discern the end. He discerned the end. He understood the end. He helped the psalmist look into the future and see what would ultimately happen to The wicked. Remember the problem. The wicked are prospering, God. And God says, let me fast forward to the end and change your perspective. And oh, what a change in perspective this is. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what, this is what God does with the psalmist as he goes into the temple to worship. He changes his perspective and he helps them see the present in light of the end. Friends, persistent worship of God is how we put ourselves in a position to receive God's illuminating and transforming perspective. So don't run from God in your moments of doubting. Run to Him. It is foolish to try to figure out the ways of God apart from God. Only God can provide the necessary change in perspective. But what exactly is this change perspective? What did the psalmist see when God opened up his eyes to what was coming in the end? And how did it change the psalmist? Was he able to stop being envious? Was he able to remain steadfast in serving the Lord? We find the answers to these questions in the third section of this psalm. And here we see this. Viewing the wicked from God's standpoint will lead us to faithfully await the end. Viewing the wicked from God's standpoint. Remember the first part of the psalm, he's viewing the wicked from a human standpoint. But if we view the wicked from God's standpoint, it will lead us to faithfully, that's the key word, faithfully means continuing to serve the Lord as we await the end. I want you to see the change in perspective we can have when we look at life from God's standpoint. But church, I don't want you to only see things differently. I don't want you to see things differently. I want your changed perspective to lead you to live differently. Now, we don't just want to know in our minds what's coming in the end. We want that to actually have an impact on how we're living today. Remember, when we look at the wicked from a human standpoint, it leads to envy and vanity. But the opposite will be true when we view the wicked from God's standpoint. Instead of envy and vanity, we will be content with our relationship with God and our present circumstances and will be motivated to continue living for God in the midst of difficult circumstances all the way until the end. I think we could summarize the psalmist's new perspective in verses 18 through 28 with four statements. So I I want to give you these. First, when we interpret the present in light of the end, we see that the prosperity of the wicked is temporary. 
The prosperity of the wicked is temporary. Verses 18 through 20. Notice what he says. And, and, and I love the Psalms. The poetry there, the imagery is, is incredible. Notice what he says. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Compare that to how he described the wicked in verses 4 through 12. See the new perspective. As the psalmist worships God and receives this new perspective, he sees that the prosperity of the wicked is temporary. What is coming for the wicked? Ruin. The psalmist's feet might be slipping. Remember back in verse 2? My feet are slipping, God. The psalmist's feet might be slipping. But it is the feet of the wicked which God Himself will set in slippery places. And they will fall to their ruin. Destruction is coming for the wicked and it will happen as quickly as it takes someone to wake up from a dream. That's what he says. The wicked may spend their lives gaining worldly prosperity, but in the blink of an eye, God will destroy them. I like how uh, the pastor James Montgomery Boyce, how he put it. He said this, The wicked seem secure, but they are actually on slippery ground, and it only takes a gentle puff by God to blow them off their proud golden pedestal to ruin. It's a great explanation of what the psalmist is saying here. Friends, earthly prosperity does not equal eternal prosperity. And so when we see the wicked prospering, we must look at the present in light of the end and say that prospering is temporary. Second, when we interpret the present in light of the end, we see that the complaint of our hearts is sinful. The complaint of our hearts is sinful. Remember that the psalmist has basically been complaining that the wicked are better off than the righteous. He kind of walks into the courtroom, right? And he, he's, he's making his complaint, laying out his evidence of why he's right, why this complaint is justified. And really this complaint is a complaint against God's goodness and how God's goodness manifests itself in our everyday lives. But as is always the case, when we begin to see things as God sees things, we see that God is right and we are wrong <laughs> every time. The psalmist says in verses 21 through 22, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What's the psalmist doing there? It's a confession. Perhaps our confession of sin should sometimes sound more like the psalmist instead of just saying, Sorry, God. You see that he understands the depth of his sinfulness. Notice how he confesses it. He's confessing his sinfulness. To be pricked in heart means to be convicted. Then he admits that he spoke out of ignorance like an animal. He says, I was like a beast before you, like an animal who's not made in the image of God and who cannot understand life from God's perspective. He said, that's how I was acting. Listen, envy is a sin. And so if you've been envying the wicked, you need to confess that to God. Third, when we interpret the present in light of the end, we see that the presence of God is enough. These are some of the most beautiful words in this psalm. Most encouraging words in this psalm. Verses 23 through 26. When we interpret the present in light of the end, we see this, that the presence 
of God is enough. Verse 23 through 26 are loaded with encouragement for God's people. There's so much. There's so much we can learn from these verses. Uh, but I think the main point the psalmist is making is this. In verses 23 through 26, that the continual presence of God in our lives is enough to satisfy every longing of our hearts so that we don't envy the wicked, but press on in righteous living. Verse 23 and 24, we see God's continual presence. The psalmist writes, nevertheless, I am continually with you. So he is nevertheless, God, I am continually with you. But then notice that the reason he is with God is because God is with him. It's not because he's good enough to be with God. It's because God is actually with him. He continues, you, God, hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Christian, if you can't get excited about that, you need a, you need a heart check this morning. Because this is the grace of God. He just confessed that he's been complaining and he's been envious and he's been doubting the goodness of God. He's a sinner and yet he says that God has continued to hold him, continue to guide him, and will continue to do so until he receives the psalmist into his glory. That is the grace of God. And again, we are pointed here in this psalm to Jesus. How is it that the holy God can treat us with such kindness? It is because His Son left heaven and came to earth to work salvation for us. As we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating this grace of God come to earth. We are celebrating the patience of God with sinners and the unending covenant of love God shows to sinners. We are celebrating God holding on to us even when we feel ourselves slipping away from God. And all of this gospel news centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But then I want you to notice that this awareness of God's continual presence quiets the longing of His heart and gives Him the strength to press on. He's been wrestling. He's in turmoil. And all of a sudden, His soul is quiet. Why? Because God all of a sudden dumps all this material blessing into His life? No. Because he becomes satisfied with the presence of God. God's presence defeats the envy and vanity he struggled with in the first half of the psalm. It's God who does the work here. In verse 25 he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What was he desiring in the first part of the psalm? He's desiring all the stuff that the wicked had. But here he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In other words, God, I no longer envy the wicked. Every desire of my heart is fulfilled in you, God. Your presence is enough to destroy my envy as I see that you will one day destroy the wicked while the righteous will enter into your glory. And then we see in verse 26 that God's presence defeats his struggle with vanity. Verse 25, it defeated his struggle with envy. Verse 26, God's presence defeats his struggle with vanity. Remember back in verse 13, the psalmist felt like it was pointless to keep doing what is right. He was ready to give up on living righteously for God's sake. And now in verse 26, he says this, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know what the psalmist is saying there? I can keep serving the Lord. 
I have the strength to serve the Lord, not because the strength is in me and in, in who I am, but because God is with me. There's a strong language he is using when he says my flesh and my heart may fail. He's talking about death. And so he is saying that even in facing the greatest difficulty of life, which is death itself, he will have the strength and the contentment to press on in righteous living. Why? How? Because God is with him, holding him, guiding him, and leading him day by day to that day when he enters into the glory of God to dwell with God forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today. I want God's Word to encourage us. God is with you. You say, how is God with me? He's with you because the Word that was in the beginning and that was with God and that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And all who receive Him in faith, He gives the right to become children of God. That Word made flesh is Jesus Christ. This is the season of celebrating God with us. And it is this truth that God is with us in and through Jesus Christ that will carry us through every season of life, including the seasons of doubting the goodness of God. It is a relationship with Jesus which will give us a heavenly perspective on the temporary suffering of the righteous and the temporary prosperity of the wicked. It is belonging to Jesus which gives us certainty of our future as followers of Christ. And this certainty of the future is the last thing I want us to see. Fourth, when we interpret the present in light of the end, we see that the eternity of all people is certain. It is certain. It's final. It's set in stone. Remember that this psalm began with a certain statement of truth, that truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then the circumstances of life led the psalmist to question this truth. But then after wrestling with what he sees from a human perspective and then having his perspective transformed by God in a moment of worship and then beginning to interpret the present in light of the end, he finishes how he started. Not questioning God's goodness, but once again declaring God's goodness as seen in the certain end of all people. And this end is twofold. Those far from God will be destroyed and those near to God will be saved. There's only two ends for all people in this, in this world. Those who are far from God will be destroyed and those who are near to God will be saved. Verse 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Do you see his new perspective on the wicked? Back in verse 12, he said, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. But now, looking at life through the lens of eternity, he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Friends, those who are far from God will be destroyed. But then verse 28 says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That means my saving place. That I might tell of all your works. And that's it. That's it. Every person will meet one of two certain ends. Destruction at the hand of God or salvation at the hand of God. And the difference is whether we are far from God or near to God. The problem is that we are, as sinners are unable to draw near to God. But praise God, church, that the angel declared to the shepherds near Bethlehem that night, Fear not! 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the message of Christmas is that even though we cannot draw near to God, God has drawn near to us. Psalm 73 is the message of Christmas. God pursuing us with His presence so that we can enter His presence for all of eternity. The glory of God coming to earth so that He could receive us into His glory for all of eternity. God making a new end for sinners. An end that is really a beginning. An end where suffering in this life passes away and we dwell forever with God in a new heaven and a new earth where wickedness is absent and the riches of heaven, namely Christ Himself, are ours to enjoy forever and ever and ever. The same Jesus who came as a baby in a manger is coming back as the King of heaven and earth and He will separate those who belong to Him from those who don't. And those who belong to Him will dwell with Him forever. And those who don't belong to Him will be punished forever. The end is certain. So, if you have never believed in Jesus for salvation, then you should. It is your only hope. And if you have believed in Christ for salvation, then interpret the present in light of the end. The message of Christmas, the message of Psalm 73, church, the message of God with us, even when we feel like our faith is slipping, that message leads us to faithfully await the end. And we faithfully await these last things by serving Him in righteousness, as the psalmist says, declaring, notice the last verse here in Psalm 73, declaring the wonderful works of God. I will close with the words of Jesus to His followers as He helped them interpret the present in light of the end. He said this, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the message of Christmas. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Psalm 73. We thank You for Your continual presence with us. Even in those moments of our lives when we feel like we are slipping from Your presence. When we feel like our faith is on shaky ground. Father, You are with us. And You are holding on to us. And You are guiding us. And You are preparing us through the trials of life to one day be received by You into Your glory. Father, may we not be envious of the wicked. May we not think that serving You is all in vain. But Father, as we continue to choose to worship You, even when we don't feel like it, Father, would You continue to give us a new perspective. Thank You for revealing to us the end. Help us to live today in light of that end. Thank You for Jesus, who is God with us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.